Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and the tune that began this podcast was composed by fiddler Michael Cleveland, and is played by Michael and Jason Carter on Twin Fiddles. Michael named the tune Henryville for the town where he grew up. He was born blind, but he fell in love with fiddle music at a young age. Thanks to the love and support of his parents and music lessons he received while attending a school for the blind, Michael went on to dedicate his life to music and is considered one of the most accomplished bluegrass fiddlers in the world today. He has been voted Fiddler of the Year six times in a row by the International Bluegrass Music Association. He is also a band leader, the name of his band, The Flamekeeper. I caught up with Michael in 2018 at the Hiawatha Traditional Music Festival that is held each summer near the city of Marquette in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. When I first arrived at the festival, Michael was giving a fiddle workshop with Stephen Sammy Lynn, the fiddler in the Foghorn String Band. It was a fascinating workshop, representing widely divergent fiddle styles, but united by a genuine passion and love for the violin. The next morning, I interviewed Michael in the dining room of the house where he was staying with his band. Here now is that interview. So if you could just tell me your uh, your story, again, your family. I know your grandparents were involved very actively in the bluegrass yeah. world, but they weren't necessarily musicians. So why don't you tell me your story, how the violin came to be such an important part of your life? Okay. Well, um, uh None of my family ever played any music at all, but my grandparents, they were, they were about the age, you know, to, to retire, you know, and they, they were, they, I forget where they first heard or, you know, really got involved with bluegrass, but they, they loved the music so much that they started this bluegrass association in henryville indiana where we all lived at the time and henryville is just right across the river from louisville kentucky it's about 20 25 miles from louisville so it's pretty close um so they started this bluegrass association about the time i was born and a lot of people thought that they started it for me but they they didn't i mean they they just they loved the music, and they, they got to know people who played from the other associations. See, there was another, there was a an association that, that started out in Borden, Indiana, that met, I don't know, I think every first Saturday of the month. And then there was one at Scottsburg, Indiana, that met every third, and if there was a fifth Saturday, then they would meet. And so my grandparents started this thing in Henryville that met every second and fourth Saturday of the month. So there was bluegrass every Saturday night. And so from the time I was about six months old, they started taking me to all these shows. And I mean, every Saturday we'd be gone somewhere. And, you know, they, they went to Bean Blossom and I got to go with them. Of course, I don't remember it. I was really young. But, uh so, I mean, I kind of grew up just it, I listening to bluegrass, you know. Even when I would go over there to their house, I would, uh, they had a big eight-track player. And they had, you know, a speaker <laughs> on either side. And 
I, when I was real little, I'd flip one of those speakers over and lay my head on the speaker and go to sleep and listen to stuff, you know. Well, so... Um, well, last night at the uh, concert, when you guys were playing on stage, this is at the Hiawatha uh, Music Festival, uh, there was a little child, probably one and a half, maybe two, asleep. And there was just such music all around that child, and they were just sleeping. And I, I just know that music is entering into every fiber of their yep. being. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a big reason that, that I wanted to play, just because I, I was around it, you know? And, and like, I, I think that's, you know, just just hearing it and, and being around so much of it, you know, that... That's really something else. But like I started, like when I was around four years old, and a lot of people I know can't remember anything about what they, you know, what happened when they were four years old. But I remember hearing a local fiddle player at one of those bluegrass shows play the Orange Blossom Special. And that's what really... uh captivated me and and like i heard that song and i knew that i had to learn how to play that you know like um and so i i decided i wanted to start playing the fiddle and they they were trying to figure out there was a great local fiddler from henryville uh named jeff guernsey you know, he he traveled on the road with Steve Warner for a lot of years and Vince Gill and uh, now he's just teaching full time. He's got a lot of students in Southern Indiana, and so they tried to get him to to teach me, and he couldn't really figure out how to teach uh, you know somebody who was visually impaired. And so when I uh, I started school at the Kentucky School for the Blind. I had the option of either going to Kentucky or Indiana. The Indiana school was in Indianapolis, and that was two hours away. And the Kentucky school for the blind was, you know, obviously a lot closer. So that's where I went. And uh, there was a strings program at the school that, that taught, uh, you know, violin, viola, cello, you know, that kind of thing. And they taught the Suzuki method, violin. And so, uh, I walked into the classroom the first day, and the uh, the music teacher, Mrs. Nolan, uh, she was asking. She said, "So I hear you want to learn how to play the violin. Why? You know, what is it about the violin?" I said, "Well, I don't know much about the violin, but I know a lot about the fiddle." <laughs> and she said, "Really? What? What is it about the fiddle?" She, and I said, well, I want to learn how to play bluegrass, and I want to learn how to play the Orange Blossom Special. <laughs> and uh, that didn't go over too well. But she said, that'll be a while, you know. Um, and really, for the first year, year and a half, I made so little progress that, you know, and I think probably because I started so young, maybe, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, really didn't think I was going to be able to play. Mm -hmm. And I finally, you know, after 
after a year and a half, maybe two years, I started, you know, making some progress, you know, but it's like, it's like anything, you know, you hear, you hear people say, oh man, he's just, he's just talented, he's just gifted, you know, he just picked it up and started playing, I mean, you know, whatever, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, you know, you gotta have some talent, you gotta have some ability for sure, but, you know, whatever you do, you're gonna have to work for it, and it's not overnight, and, you know, a lot of people, they decide, you know, to pick up an instrument because they think it's going to be overnight, and they think it's going to be quick, you know, and it's not, and, but the thing is, you know, if you love it, and you really want to do it, you'll put the time in, and I'm so thankful that my parents and my grandparents, they were not like a lot of the parents I see today, and, I mean, it's like, today, whenever the kid has a little bit of talent, the parent goes nuts. And they just shove them in front of everybody. And they, you know, shove them on stage everywhere or, or you know, workshops or whatever. And then the kid stops being a kid anymore. And then it just becomes a vehicle for the parents to live the dream that they never, you know, could have done in the first place. Right, yeah. But... Like, my, my grandparents and my parents both, you know, I remember when I did my first fiddle contest when I was seven years old, my dad told me, he said, look, you know, we'll, we'll help you as long as you want to do this, you know, we, uh, we're happy that you're doing this and we'll help you as much as we can, but if you get to the point where you don't want to do this, then let us know. And so I never did feel like, and I, I did contests with a bunch of kids, you know, that like, and I, you know, there were, there were kids that told me, oh man, do your parents ever threaten to sell your fiddle? It's like, what? He's, oh yeah, my parents threaten me all the time. If I don't practice, you know, I'll sell your fiddle. Or, uh, you know, you better play good in this contest or you're going to get it tonight. Just sad, you know. But, so I, I was, it was pretty much, you know, they, my grandparents started taking me once I got to a point where I could play a little bit, and they, they retired, um, and they, they started taking me to, to these, you know, fiddle contests, of course, you know, we do the local bluegrass shows every Saturday night, you know, but if there was a fiddle contest in Clarksville, Tennessee, or or Athens, Alabama, or, or uh, Lynchfield, Kentucky, Rough River, you know, the Kentucky State Fiddle Championship, or, you know, if there was like, we went to Bean Blossom, and, and we went to, to all these festivals, you know, and, and that was really good, because it wasn't just seeing people play in my backyard, it was like getting out, seeing all these great players, and... There were, so, there were so many good players. I'm curious, you know, because obviously you've worked with a limitation in life. I often think that creativity springs from limitation, not from unlimited possibilities. I, I really do think that way. So obviously your eyesight or lack of eyesight has been a profound uh, fact of your life. And so um, 
I'm really curious about, uh, well, just the practicality of this teacher that you had at the School for the Deaf. Uh, sorry, the School for the Blind. Blind. Yes. How that you went about learning music, because well, see, you, could, you wouldn't be reading the music as such. Right. I mean, we all play by ear, but that's the thing about a School for the Blind. And, and that's the thing that you can't get, like, when, when, you're, when you're visually impaired, you, you still have the option to go to a public school. Mm-hmm. Or you can go to a school for the blind. And the thing is, you know, the school for the blind has, they, the, the people there know how to deal with, and, and they know how to teach visually impaired people. And so you're not really anything special there. You know, it's just what, it's what they do. You know, there are teachers there who are visually impaired who uh-huh. who can, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't ever a big deal, you know, like it wasn't ever, oh, you're blind, you know, so therefore you have to do this and you have to do this. And by the way, you're blind. It's like everybody there was blind and, and some of the teachers were blind, you know, and like some of the most successful people, lawyers, judges and, and you know, all these, you know, writers and everything else. And so they, they, uh, it, it never was like considered a limitation. And, uh, I, I just, you know, we, we never thought of it in that way. But you were learning the music just using your ears. Right. And, uh, in some ways that, that might've been a, a wonderful experience. Rather than just assuming you were going to learn also to read the music on a page. Right. Your well, whole introduction to music is what music is, which is sound. Yeah. And uh, this is how you've learned from the very beginning. Yeah. And, you know, I think in a way, I think in a lot of ways that's helped. Because, like in bluegrass um, and, and a lot of other types of music, you don't read the music. You know, like bluegrass is really a lot, you know, based on listening and, you know, listening to the other musicians and, uh, and, and learning by ear. I mean, there's a lot of tab and there's a lot of sheet music that you can buy, but to really capture the feeling and the nuances of, you know, great bluegrass you know, you, you have to have a feel for it and you have to be able to listen to, to what's going on. So I think, and, and a lot of people say, you know, a lot of teachers, they say, you know, I want you to practice in a dark room. I want, to pra- I want you to practice without looking at your hands. Because, you know, you get that muscle memory and, and you listen and you, you can hear when, when the notes are in tune rather than, Okay, so it's right about here, you know, so that's where it should be. So so when you were at these fiddle contests when you were young with all these other young people, and we know fiddle contests are very competitive. Some people take them much more seriously than others. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, But you, you're not able to read people's physical gestures. You can't see their faces, their expressions. Uh, but I'm wondering whether your ear has developed a... Uh, an ability to understand personality just through yeah, how the oh, voice yeah. is used. 
So you still would know who they were, who your friends were, yep. and who the people you shouldn't trust. <laughs> oh, you can tell. You can tell by, you know, like, uh, we were at, I, I was at IBMA, uh, the International Bluegrass Music Association Convention, a few years ago with a buddy of mine, good friend from Louisville, and we were, uh, we were on the elevator, and we... And the elevator stopped at this floor. It wasn't the floor we were going to. But the door opened and I heard a fiddle. And I immediately knew. I I looked at my friend. I was like, dude, that's Bobby Hicks playing the fiddle. Bobby Hicks is like one of the legendary bluegrass fiddlers, you know. And so I've, I've listened to his playing like on records for years. And he's kind of one of my fiddle heroes, you know, and so I heard probably about four notes, and I looked at, you know, I was like, dude, that's Bobby Hicks, nah, man, that's got to be somebody else, and so we went up wherever, we came back, sure enough, it was Bobby Hicks, you know, (laughs) but that's the thing, you know, you get, you, you hear what people sound like, and, and you, like, you'll get to where, you know, you can, yeah, you know, like a lot of times I can tell who plays fiddle on records because cause everybody's got their own tone. You know, everybody's got their own, you know, Kenny Baker had a had a sound and, and uh, Stuart Duncan has has his sound. Everybody has their own approach, might be the note choices that they play and it might be the tone that they pull or, or any other kind of thing. It can be sometimes. I know this is somebody mentioned this to me in Irish music. Um, you know, we always think about intonation being everything, you know, yep. being absolutely on the money. But in point of fact, we probably all don't hear intonation the same way. So right. some Irish fiddlers will be slightly flat on the on the C sharp yep. consistently because that's how they hear it. And right. once you hear that fiddling, you say, oh, you know who it is immediately. And yep. it's not something that's a flaw. It's what gives its unique quality. It yeah, works. Right. Yeah, and I love that. And but that's that's developing the ear to a great uh, degree of precision to hear. But those that's the thing, things. you know, when you when you get interested in it, and if you really really want to learn how to do it, you know, whatever it is, the thing is to immerse yourself in it and you know listen to everybody. I mean, that's what I did yeah that's what i still do you said in the beginning you would go find the records back in the day when everybody was listening to records you would find his older records with the different players chubby wise and all the oh yeah all the great players and hear what they were doing i noticed that the way you hold your bow i know i'm jumping here but you were saying you were taught with the suzuki method yeah and you were taught from what four to about 13 14 years old yeah so good Um, long good long while yeah, and I don't know how I ended up with that bow hole. I, I think, I remember, you know, just thinking I could get more out of the instrument that way, you know, like, um, but yeah, I actually did learn how to hold the bow right at one time. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> but Your teacher would be very upset to see what you're doing. No. Ah, uh, yeah, she's seen it. But What was her name? Uh, my, my classical teacher was Mrs. Nolan. Miss Nolan. And, uh, yeah, she, uh, 
she actually came out to to see us play a few years ago. But um, did you play the Orange Blossom special for her? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah, of course. You know. <laughs> but the thing that's the other thing is like when I started, I don't know what bluegrass they had heard, but they really didn't want me to play bluegrass, and they had, they must have heard. And and it's easy to do this, you know. You hear a bad example of something, and you just label it. Okay, that's it. I don't like that, you know. And so, I don't know what they heard, but they they didn't want me to play bluegrass for the longest time. And then, um, uh, it came to a point where you know I was about twelve or thirteen. And I was, you know, doing a lot of contests, going to the festivals. And, um, you know, my music teacher at school, you know, really wanted me to do the, you know, violin workshops during the summer. That was right, you know, in the middle of festival time. So it came to a point where I had to choose. And, um, I mean, I... Yeah, I it was a no-brainer for me, and you know it seemed to be the kind of thing where if if I didn't if I didn't do the classical workshops and you know there was really no point continuing, they said. So I dropped out of the classical program, and um, so I I just learn bluegrass you know it's from, from the time I was like 13 till you know I was like 16 and then uh I came back to the classical program in like my sophomore year of high school and I played for uh Miss Nolan you know she was like man you're way more advanced than you were when you left you know what have you been doing I said, well, I've been playing bluegrass. She said, really? And I said, yeah, you know. And um, so I started bringing in these Kenny Baker and Bobby Hicks and, and all these fiddle players, you know, all these records. And they just couldn't believe that it was bluegrass. I was thinking about whether when you were learning the classical repertoire, whether your teachers were telling you stories about these different composers, the times they lived in, why they wrote the music they did, and how much of that grabbed your imagination? I remember them telling me, you know, about classical composers. The one that always stuck out to me, and not that I could play any of his stuff, but uh, the one that I always really liked was Paganini just because, you know, he was considered crazy, you know, by <laughs> a lot of people, you know. It's like, and he he was considered to be, if I'm not mistaken, like the devil by some people, just because he would compose these pieces, you know. Like one, one time, I mean, apparently he wrote a, a piece that was just played on one string. I think it was like the G string. And like that, that fascinated me, and it and it was related. It kind of made me think of this bluegrass fiddler named Scotty Stoneman, that was just 
real kind of, you know, had all kinds of prior techniques in his playing and like way ahead of his time, you know, kind of a, kind of a wild individual, you know, kind of died really young and, you know, had a drinking problem and all this, but I mean, just a really great player and just, you know, play all kinds of crazy licks and double stops and triple stops and just play so hard, you know, that... And so it kind of made that, you know, hearing about Paganini, you know, would always make me think of Scotty Stoneman. But um, other than that, as far as the classical composers, you know, I've, I I was way more interested in bluegrass at at that time. So I, and I always liked classical music, and I think if I hadn't have started with it, I don't think I'd have been able to, to play. But, you know, as I was really into bluegrass and I think a lot of, a lot of the reason, I guess, that maybe I didn't pay as much attention to it is just because, you know, they were, they were so dead set against me playing bluegrass at that time. But, um. So what is it about the classical training? Because you said that in a workshop yesterday, that you don't really believe you could play at the level you play now at all without that foundation well yeah i mean it just what did you learn from that specifically just developing you know my ear you know and like pitch and like intonation and you know uh and all your different positions up and down the neck yeah yeah definitely and and the the vibrato and and all that kind of thing I i think a lot of that would have been hard for me to learn just on my own or or whatever. I mean, there were good players in the area, and I learned a lot from them, you know, but I think without that foundation to start with, the other thing that they do, you know, it's like when you're visually impaired and you're learning how to play, and it's like I was I was saying before, they tried to get a guy to teach me, and he couldn't figure out how, was when, when, when I started at school, they had this thing called a bow guide, that, you know, kind of, it was this, kind of hooked over the, the violin some way, you know, like around the body and the strings. And it was like this, these two pieces that your bow kind of fit in between, you know, to, to show you kind of where your bow needed to be. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. In positions like... And and that was a huge help, just to get my bow in the right spot, you know, so it didn't just go everywhere. But um, do, now, do you have any sight at all, or not? Nah, I could see light. Okay, but no no detail. Right. Uh-huh. So the uh, you made this decision uh, to then to go full time bluegrass, and then when did you uh, decide that this would be in fact your livelihood as well? Um, you know, I remember when I was little and growing up, you know, there used to be on TV, on cable, there used to be TNN, the Nashville Network. You could watch like the televised portion of the Grand Ole Opry, and then you could watch shows like New Country or Fire on the Mountain or Nashville Now, you know, and they would have all these 
great country acts and a lot of bluegrass at the time. And uh, this way before CMT or, you know, definitely before Facebook, YouTube, and all this other stuff. Well, so, I remember seeing, you know, like Doc Watson and Ronnie Millsap and, you know, people like that. And, I mean, once I figured out that they could go out and do it for a living, you know, that's that became what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And how'd that happen? Did you just, did you find someone to, did you work with another band initially? Well, yeah, that's that's the thing, you know. Um, I guess my first time to really play in front of a lot of people in the bluegrass community was when I was 13. And uh, there was... There was this article that was in the Washington Post. And the article was talking about bluegrass music. And there was a point in the article where somebody was saying, you know, bluegrass is dying. You know, there's no young people interested in it anymore. And so there's there was a banjo player, Pete Warnick, who was the president of the International Bluegrass Music Association at the time. And he decided he was going to prove that article wrong. And so he got a band. He he wanted to put together a band of kids. And uh, it was Josh Williams, who now plays with Rhonda Vincent, and uh, had his own band for a long time. And Chris Thiele, you know, who's Punch Brothers and you know, now the host of Prairie Home Companion. And uh, uh, Cody Kilby, who played with Ricky Skaggs for a long time and now is playing with the Traveling McCurries. And my friend Brady Stockdale, who was actually a guitar player, but who played bass with us. So it was me and Josh, Chris, Cody... Brady and um, so I got in a jam with with Josh Williams like a year before and Pete Warnick the the president of IBMA he called Josh's dad and Josh's dad suggested me to be the fiddle player and so they they uh, they put this band together and we played on the International Bluegrass Music Association awards show and so, I mean, everybody in bluegrass was there. I mean, I, that was the first time I'd ever got to go to IBMA. And I was just like a kid in a candy store. You know, you name it. Anybody, you know, that, that I had ever listened to on records, they were there. And I got to talk to all of them. And I got to jam with a lot of them. As a matter of fact, that, that segment that we played was filmed for a documentary that they were making called Gather at the River that was all about the uh, IBMA convention that at the time was in Owensboro, Kentucky. And a lot of it, the, the weekend festival was held on the river there. But so that, they were filming for that after the awards show, We after we played for that, uh, my dad and I were walking around there was jamming everywhere. I mean, everybody was playing. 
And we ended up, it was in this bathroom, and there was this jam going on, and it was Doc Watson and uh, Tim O'Brien and his Russian guitar player, Beppe Gambetta, and uh, Dan Crary, and I forget who was playing bass. Uh, and I think Pete Warnick might have been in the jam too, but um, anyhow, my dad asked if I could jam with them. And uh, they said, well, sure, you know, so we, we jammed for about an hour, you know, <laughs> and, you know, it was awesome. You know, it's jam with Doc Watson. <laughs> I'd heard and kind of became familiar with Doc from the uh, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Will the Circle Be Unbroken album. And one of my favorite parts of the album was, you know, not only the music, but you could hear conversations in the studio. You know, you could hear Doc talking, you know, and you, you could hear conversation between Doc Watson and Merle Travis, you know, and like Doc, you just seem to be this great kind of down to earth guy. And, and then, you know, when you meet somebody and, and they actually turn out to be what you think they are, you know, it's just like. And to get to, to jam with all those guys, and, and they filmed that for that as part of that documentary as well. And so I think those two things, doing the IBMA Awards with, with the Youth All-Stars and then doing the jam with Doc, I think that was my first really introduction into the bluegrass community. And then... Uh, I would go out every once in a while, you know, I, I go to, to the festivals and then like once I got to be like 16, 17, I played out at Merle Fest a couple times with, with a good friend, Jeff White, who, um, had played or he, uh, he plays and, and sings a high part in Vince Gill's band and also now plays with the Earls of Lester. Jerry Douglas's Flat Scruggs band. Um, so Jeff White had a couple albums out, and my buddy Jeff Guernsey from Indiana was in the band that he put together to kind of go out and support those albums. And Jeff said, you know, it's uh, you should get Michael Cleveland to play the fiddle, you know. And so so it, it, we went and did a few dates. We played Merle Fest, whatever. And I, I'm, I, I guess I was kind of not too happy about it at the time, but I'm really grateful for it now because, you know, about the time we started doing that youth all-star thing and, um, you know, like Chris Thiele, he had a record contract when he was 14 years old. And, I mean, he was homeschooled and he was on the road all the time and, Josh Williams, you know, he had a record contract, and he was on the road, and he was homeschooled, and I'm, I remember really, man, why can't I do that? I really would like to, you know, really, you know, I wanted to quit school and just go play music, you know, <laughs> it's like, uh, but I'm really glad that my parents made me finish school, and uh, but when I was 18, I decided I was going to go to college if I couldn't find a job playing music. And, 
And I was looking everywhere. I was calling around trying to see, you know, if there was anything. And, uh, and when I stopped looking, then the phone rang and, uh, it was, uh, Vicki Simmons, who was bass player for, uh, a great, uh, lady singer, Dale Ann Bradley. And, and they had a band and they were looking for a fiddle player. And so that was my first job. And there was a lot of things, you know, a lot of people probably wondering, well, he's blind. You know, what, what are we going to have to do mm-hmm. you know, for, for him to be able to travel with us? And, well, the cool thing was Vicky, the bass player who called, she was legally blind. You know, so she understood, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal you know so I went so as soon as I graduated high school I went out and started playing with them I played with with them for about six months and then I got the uh, call to to go play with Rhonda Vincent and the Rage there was banjo player who was in the band at, a, at the time that that we had we had played together quite a bit and he he recommended me for the job there, and I played in that band for about a year and a half, and then I went back to Dale Ann's band and played for about five years until I started my own band. And now during that time, I was making records. I was making solo records mm-hmm. on Rounder, and I got that... Uh, contract uh i i got to know ken Irwin, who was president of rounder at the time uh, when i was playing with Rhonda vincent and he you know i was gonna make a solo record and i asked ken if he'd be interested and he said he would you know so we did we did uh two two solo albums while i was playing uh in Rhonda and dale ann's bands Let's take a break in the interview to listen to Michael play the tune that first inspired him to take up the fiddle. The tune is The Orange Blossom Special.
So in that workshop that you did yesterday, we talked about the uh, the fiddle that you're playing, and it has the five strings, which has become quite popular now. I know a lot of people are playing five strings. And uh, we talked about the tradition of this music having been played on four-string violins forever, and uh, now the fifth string, and how you use the fifth string or don't, and, and about the maker of this violin. So could you just kind of give me a sense of what is this violin and what's your relationship with it? Why do you like it? Yeah, so the, the violin that, that I play is made by a guy named John Silikowski, and he lives in Scottsburg, Indiana, not too far from, from where I live. And he's a guy I've known all my life, you know. He, he always uh, worked on instruments, and I remember being real little and seeing him around, and he would work on stuff. He'd play this fiddle. I just, you know, took a bunch of wood out of the back of this fiddle, you know, because it's way too much. And I re-graduated to play this, see what you think. But John, I mean, I guess I guess he was around even when I was really little, you know, going to these bluegrass things that my grandparents had. So when I was real young, I was getting ready to go into a quarter-size fiddle. And we had rented one, or we had bought one from this music store in Indiana. And I didn't know, but it was a piece of junk. And uh, so John comes up to me. He heard me playing this fiddle, you know, and he, just out of the blue, he said, Man... Why don't you get rid of that thing and let me go get you a good fiddle? And I thought, who is this guy, you know? <laughs> and I, I said, really? He said, yeah, man, I find these quarter-sized fiddles all the time. I'll get you one. And uh, and he did. It was a good one. And he actually found me a half-sized fiddle that was actually made like in the 1800s. It was made by... Uh, it was like an Italian fiddle. I forget what the, the name of it was, but it was really good sounding half size fiddle. Like a lot of people would, would it sounded like a full size fiddle. And so I, I would play that and then he found me a three quarter size once I got into that. And then when I was 12 years old, he had started building and he had built. Uh, well, I think the first fiddle of his that I ever had, it was four string, but it was number five. And so I, I played on that for a while. And then it seems like I had another four string of his and then, uh, and a couple of, of five strings. But the one I have now, uh, was actually supposed to go to this guy in Alaska. He had heard me playing one of John's five strings, and, and th this guy in Alaska had, and he come up to me, and he was like, man, I like that fiddle. And, you know, how can I get a hold of this guy who made your fiddle? And I, so I gave him John's info, and they got in touch, and he, he asked John to build him a five-string, and he was going to send him all the wood to do it, you know. So, sent him all this really nice Alaskan, you know, wood. So, John built it. 
and me and my buddy Jeff Guernsey were recording at his house, and so John brings that fiddle and a few others over, and we were playing on them. And I played that fiddle that was supposed to go to the guy in Alaska, and I just fell in love with it. And I said, man, I gotta have this fiddle. And he said, well, you can't have it. You know, Richard in Alaska, he's he sent me all the wood for it, you know, so I can't really send him anything else. And so I thought, well, that's gone, you know, because it sounded so good. I thought, man, there's no way that this guy is not going to like this fiddle. Well, he sent the fiddle, and I found out later the guy would call him. The guy drove him nuts all week. He'd call him every <laughs> night. Well, you know, I really like it. It sounds great, you know, but I let this guy play it, and he thought this, you know, and, and it's really, he said it's really weak in this area, and then he called him back the next day. You know, I let so-and-so play it. It's got a little bit of a wolf tone, and uh, I didn't like that, and, you know, and then he called him back on Wednesday. Man, I really like this fiddle, you know, and so John just called him on a day where he didn't like it, and he said, all right, box it up, send it back. I got somebody who wants it. And so I got the fiddle. And That's a great story. Oh, man. You know, and I still see that guy. You know? Uh, and, and he hears you playing it on, on stage? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I bet he has his second <laughs> thoughts about it now. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, uh, so I've had that since, I think, 97 or something. And that, I've got other fiddles, but that's my main fiddle you know that's the one i always come back to you know i think after you play an instrument for years and years you know you kind of develop a, a rapport with it i guess you know you figure out you know what i guess you and the instrument you know you have a relationship you know you figure out how to get stuff out of it that you know you might not be able to get out of, of something that you know, it's newer instrument or whatever, and it might even sound better, you know, but, you know, once you really get used to something, but, you know, this fiddle, I would play it even if it wasn't a five-string, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the sound of it is just, it has everything that I like to hear, so. You talked yesterday in the workshop about a lot of five-strings will have, will kind of bottom out on that C-string. I mean, there are I don't know the exact term you use, but they it's hard to get a five string to play well across all those strings, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and not only play well, but you know, it's just like, you know, not not real you know, this this is pretty beefy sounding, you know, but still it's got enough highs in it and mid range, you know, that it's not all bottom end, you know, or it's not real shrill sounding either, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's got plenty of volume. I like volume. <laughs> I like to be heard. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So. Last question. Uh, and I was going to ask you about your parents. What, what's your parents' names? John and Elaine Cleveland. And what was, what was your father's work in the world? He was a truck driver. <sighs> he drove for uh, Pepsi for, for a lot of years. And then he drove for a company named, uh, called Averitt Express. Is he still alive? 
Yeah, yeah, they're still, um, he's, uh, uh, on disability now. He had to have a couple of hip replacements here last year, but he's, he loves to drive. He'll probably be driving in some capacity. <laughs> he's a traveler. Does he come to a lot of your shows? Yeah, some, you know, when, when it's something really close by, you know, or, or whatever, but yeah, he doesn't travel with us all the time. I would imagine your parents are are quite happy you found this way in the world. They probably had questions, you know, how were you going to make it? How were you going to be in the world? What would you do, given the limitation you had? And here you found a way to have quite a very fulfilling life. Oh, yeah, you know, and I mean, they, they've always been really encouraged. Uh, like, they, they really encouraged me. And did everything, you know, to help me try and, and do this, you know. And I know a lot of people who really didn't get that much help. And, you know, who were just as good. And uh, I'm really fortunate that, that I had, you know, people, you know, my, my parents thought enough about what I was trying to do that, that they really helped facilitate that. How'd you come up with the name Flame Keepers? Um, you know, that was the title of uh, my first solo album that I did for Rounder when, when I was uh, still in Rhonda Vincent's band. And uh, the Ken Irwin, the, the guy there at Rounder, he came up with the title Flame Keeper. As far as starting the band, I never set out to be a band leader. I never wanted to be a band leader. The deal was, like, uh, I was playing at Dale Ann Bradley's band, and she uh, she didn't have a lot of dates uh, for, for the summer. Uh, like, I think it was 2006. And, I mean, we wanted... I, I wanted to figure out some way to, to work, you know? And so... I went to, to a few of the guys that, that played on those records, and I was like, you know, what if we just try to do a few shows here and there, you know, just kind of as a special thing, you know. And uh, and so they said, yeah, and, and we found the booking agent to do that. And the booking agent heard us play a showcase, and he said, this is what you need to be doing. And so, I mean, like I said, I never wanted to be a band leader. All I ever wanted to do was play music. And so being a band leader has been a learning experience, and it's still a learning experience. But I will say, if it hadn't been for my dad and the booking agent that I have, Jim Rowe, and our publicist, Kimberly, and a lot of other people, I mean, I I would have, I wouldn't be able to do it for sure. But you know, I'm just grateful that I've I've really been lucky in my life to to find people who have been able, you know, to really get on board and believe in what we do, you know, and and want to help and be a part of it. Yeah, the members of your band. What's that? The members of your band. Oh yeah, great yeah, bunch of guys. Sure. Yeah, great yeah, bunch of guys. you know, and that—that's kind of a, 
that's kind of a weird thing in itself because when I started the band, it, it wasn't the same configuration we have now. You know, when I started the band, and, and at one point we had members from everywhere. At one point I had a guitar player from Pennsylvania, bass player from Virginia, and a mandolin player from Maine, a banjo player from Tennessee. <laughs> and, I mean, so, but, but here's the cool thing. Here it is, and... You know, and, and, and for a while there in my band, I had some of the biggest names in the industry in this band. Because that's what it was supposed to be originally. It was supposed to be this all-star band, you know, big name, heavy hitter, you know, players, you know. And here it is. It's come, come around now. The mandolin player I've known since I was 12 years old. And the guitar player I've known since I was a teenager, you know, and mm -hmm. and never dreamed that we'd ever be able to play in a band together. Never would have thought it in a million years. And here it's, you know, it's kind of came full circle. That's great. Well, they know you and they must have real confidence and trust in you and, and you and them. Uh, and we're done, but I'm just going to put in one idea. There, There's some... There were these things that people used to have, these small boxes, that they would move fire in, you know, back before there were matches, right? It was hard to get a fire going. And they would take the moss and they take the coals and they could cover it and they could travel with that from one place to another and arrive and be able to start a fire, get a flame going. And so it's a, it's a you know a flame keeper of sorts. And I'm thinking of the violin as just a physical box. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Michael. It's been a real yeah, pleasure. thank you. Let's listen now to Michael play a portion of another tune that he wrote titled Sunday Drive. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. I would like to thank the organizers of the Hiawatha Traditional Music Festival. They welcomed me as if I was a part of the family, and it was one of the most enjoyable festivals I have ever attended. I would also like to thank Kimberly Williams, who helped arrange the interview with Michael. She was a delight to work with.